Welcome to the Naked Truth. Peace to you. Let's pick up where we left off. It's Saturday night, early Sunday morning. So we're in the Gospels. That means we're going to be in the red letters. We'll hear what Jesus has to say. So without further ado, we're in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to begin at verse 1. Just in case you don't know, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. And it's... um. Um, that's about it. It's the first book in the New Testament. So this began the beginning of what um, Jesus has to say in those red letters. Chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So it's talking about Jesus on the move, setting up, basically posting up on a mountain with people following him to hear his message. Verse 2, then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, so he's gathered a crowd and he's teaching. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it seems Jesus is saying, God bless those who are poor in spirit, I guess, meaning sort of downtrodden, down down and out, depressed. Um, And saying, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, I guess, because... When you're depressed, you know something's missing. Something deep down inside is uh, empty and you're looking for it to be filled. And it seems that if you're in that boat in spirit, poor in spirit, and it's a lowercase s for spirit. So it lets you know it's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about our own spirits are the end, the light that's in us searching uh, our depths for light and for what's right Uh, when it's when it's in that condition, um, Jesus apparently is saying that's who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. I guess people who are searching for that light. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So mourning is generally when you've lost someone or something. um, And you, again, you're looking for that comfort. Jesus is saying, God bless you, you're going to find it. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So when I think of meek, I think of uh, the humble, not the haughty. The people who are kind of humble, not showboating, that sort of person. And that sort of person is the one Jesus is saying is going to be the one who ends up with everything and inheriting the earth. So um, rather than boasting in the riches like someone haughty would... The meek and mild, humble person doesn't need to do that because it turns out that's who's going to end up inheriting it anyway. uh, Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So he's saying God bless those who are, what they're seeking desperately like a meal, are those who are desperately seeking righteousness, who hunger and thirst for it. And he's saying if you really have that, that drive in you, that hunger, needing that um, feeding of what's righteous, you're going to find it and you're going to be filled with it. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So if you flex mercy when it comes to dealing with each other, uh, maybe even dealing with yourself first and foremost, but then also with each other, giving other people that same merciful love like you would yourself, loving your neighbor as yourself. Um, then I think that's who falls into that category, this category of um, showing mercy and then actually obtaining that that mercy. 
verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So since it seems people are corrupt from so very early, really, really young, I think the pure in heart, it would seem to me, would be the infants that don't make it to live very long, maybe even the unborn who don't make it to uh, see the light of day, but maybe also those who are pure in heart in the end, they may be adults, but they may be child in mind where they don't aren't aware of or aren't able to discern uh, uh, right and wrong. So in a sense, they're pure in that sense because what they have no malice in the things that would be considered evil if other people are doing them because they don't know any better. Um, that those people are going to see God. Uh, I guess partly because God is going to be the one who can pass that judgment of whether they really do not know what's right and wrong and still choose to do wrong anyway or still choose to do right anyway, just like everyone else. Verse, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So it seems to be, um, to make it to that level, to be called one of God's sons, one of God's children, what you have to do is be someone who's uh, making peace, who's all about making peace, sort of like a Dr. King, that's who comes to mind, I'm thinking, um, uh, believing that uh, uh, peace is possible and doing what you can to strive to make it. Um, but you know, every time you're for peace doesn't mean the people you're dealing with are. Just like with Dr. King, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he didn't say persecuted for just any old reason, but for righteousness sake. So if you fall into the boat of some of the people who Jesus says are going to end up being facing those persecutions uh, for his sake. For instance, like a Bible thumper condemning you for what they perceive to be uh, sinful or wicked or evil, uh, based on whatever it is they believe and based not on what Jesus himself says, and they claim to be Christian, then you probably fall under that umbrella, like someone who's trans or someone who is LGBT or under that umbrella, often condemned and even believing the condemnation because you hear it from so many different places, but you don't hear it from Jesus, which is the one place you actually have to hear it from to know if it's actually right and wrong or if it's just more dogma created by man. Um, so people who fall under that category, persecuted because uh, uh, for righteousness sake, for the idea of what people believe is right and wrong, uh, but not actually. Then you fall into that category of being the one who actually owns the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. Verse 11, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. So like I was just saying, people who are under the LGBT umbrella, but also other people who walk around thinking it's their cross to bear some other religious dogma. Like I told you about my sister, uh, one of my sisters, um, and I guess technically a half sister, but a sister in my mind, but dealing with those same issues, walking around with the idea that because she's of illegitimate birth, it means something to her soul's salvation. And because she believes that, it may it may actually do that. But in reality, if you if she'd open her eyes to what Jesus actually says, then it actually has nothing to do at all 
with um, her soul's salvation. But she can end up being persecuted for it. She can end up persecuting herself for it. But it's not actually uh, facts at all. But then also what he says, and say all kinds of evil. So people will do that. They will gladly pass judgment on you. Especially if you're under the LGBT umbrella. Thinking what they say is righteous and holy and that we are not just because it's what they believe or what they've been taught or heard in church, even though that's not actually the case at all. It's all actually false. And it's for Christ's sake because they think they're doing it out of service to Christ when it's not anything Jesus ever even thought or taught at all. Verse 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus is saying when those things happen, when you run into those judgmental jerks and hypocritical holy folks, rejoice in those days. Be glad in those days. It won't feel that way as someone who's experienced those situations until you don't feel like rejoicing when those things happen. But Jesus is letting us know rejoice be glad in those days because it turns out that's what they did the exact same mess they did and had for people way before us the prophets who were before us even jesus himself look how they treated him verse 13 you're the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its flavor how shall it be seasoned it is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men so it seems to me what Jesus is saying there, being the salt of the earth, he, I think what he's saying is we're that tiny bit of, we as in believers, that is, Christians who are Christians in action and in thought, not just in word, but actually indeed true believers, actually Christians hearing the red letters and following them. He's saying, we're the salt of the earth, as in, it doesn't take much salt for anything you're cooking. In fact, it really just takes a small amount for health reasons, but even for taste reasons. It's only supposed to take a little. And it turns out we believers are just that tiny bit. We're that sprinkling of salt walking around in the rest of the meal um, to give it seasoning, to show, shed the light, to share the light. And um, if you lose that saltiness, that difference, that thing that makes us different from the rest of the meal what makes us different from the rest of the people walking around proclaiming to be christians or even proclaiming to be some other faith or of no faith at all what makes us different makes us that salt is we are that tiny portion that's supposed to make a difference but if we don't end up adding something different to the dish adding some seasoning to the to the recipe adding something that's not there because all the rest of the darkness is already there. Religious dog dogma and you ought to do this and you can't do that is already there. It's already there in so many other different ways that if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be adding something different that's not there. And the different that's not there are these red letters of what Jesus actually had to say about any given situation. And if you are someone supplying that and then you stop supplying that, you lose that salt, you lose it in yourself or you lose the sharing of that light to other people then I think what Jesus is saying, what are you good for at that point? You're not good, um, um, you're not fit to to be used for cooking anymore. You're not fit to carry that message anymore. You're not fit to change the dish anymore. Um, And um, what you are fit for is just to be tossed out and 
thrown away, trampled underfoot by men. You're turned to trash. You're turned to garbage at that point because you're not providing the seasoning that you're meant to provide. You're not shedding that light that you're meant to share. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. I'll say that again. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. So Jesus is saying, just like he was saying, we're that salt, the tiny part that makes a big difference. In the same way, we are that light in the world um, and not meant to be hidden, but instead meant to be a beacon, to be shared, to be guidance. And he's saying, if you do that, you can't be hidden. Verse 15, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. So just like you add the salt to the dish to season the whole dish, doesn't take a whole lot. In the same way, you're supposed to add that light and share that light. Not hide it, not put it someplace secret, not share your Christian, have your Christian beliefs only for you that you tuck away somewhere and share with yourself. But instead, share it in your daily walk, share it in your at moment, at every moment of your talk, share it. It doesn't mean walking around thumping your Bible and acting sanctified, but instead letting it show in what you do, letting it show in how you are. Sharing it in that sense, having salt there, sharing and shedding light there so that it can be seen rather than the only person who knows you have any faith at all or have any holiness or goodness in you at all. It's just between you and the Lord because otherwise no one else sees it. That's not good. You're supposed to share that light, not put it under a basket, not stash it away. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So notice what Jesus says to do there. He says, let your light shine. So again, don't hide your the goodness that you, if you really believe what you, that your faith is based in something good and righteous, then why wouldn't you share that? And if you are truly sharing that, then that's a good thing because it's not to shed light on you so people can say, oh, what a good person you are. But instead, to, so people can see it and say, well, you'd only be doing that because it gives glory to God so that to God can be will be the glory so that people will give praise to God, not give praising to you, but give praises to God because they can see the motivation of what makes you walk your walk and talk the talk is based truly in your belief and faith in God, not in how good and holy you think you are. Verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So this is why we read the Old Testament as we call it on Mondays and Wednesdays and see what's written there too, because that's where you will find what Jesus is referring to here, the law and the prophets. The law basically be the Ten Commandments, although as Jesus tells us, not everything uh, in the law like circumcision, for instance, what Jesus refers to is from Moses at all, but instead it's from what he calls the fathers, what we would call the forefathers or biblical patriarchs. That That's what a lot of that is, especially if you go beyond the Ten Commandments, which we have just made it to on our Monday, Wednesday night readings, our Old Testament readings. If you are reading with me there, that's where we got into. That's where the law happens. But then after those Ten Commandments are given, you see that a religious order is sort of set up without God's, uh, um, uh, without consulting with God by Moses and the forefathers, 
where that's where all the dogma gets introduced and all the you can do this and you can do that and none of it actually sounds very uh godly at all for instance the treatment treatment of slaves not even condemning the ownership of your fellow man as and slavery but condemning and and telling you how to treat the the slaves and it gets much worse than that in the uh how to sexually assault the female prisoners of war that's in that's codified in the old testament and so you can't possibly believe that a god who sees us all as equal and all on the same level and not a respecter of persons would actually be get handing out that kind of advice on how to treat your fellow man but at the same time telling you to love your neighbor as yourself if you love your neighbor as yourself you're not enslaving them you're not sexually assaulting them you're not selling them you just aren't they they don't those things are mutually exclusive they can't go together and yet you see them laid out in the old testament so long story short if that's short is that's what jesus is referring to here when he says the law um, and he's most likely referring to just those 10, not all the dogma attached because he tears down a lot of that dogma again and again when he's confronted by the religious leaders of that day. But then he's also referring to the prophets. So the prophets are like, for instance, Isaiah or Jeremiah. It's people in the Old Testament who seem to have a hotline, direct connection to God and share the message with the people who weren't as tuned in to what it is, what God's will is for them at that time. That's what Jesus is referring to when he says the law and the prophets. And look what he says. He's saying he's not come to destroy them. Not at all. So that And people will take that to mean, oh, well, that means you're supposed to follow the Old Testament and the New Testament. You're supposed to uh, try to abide by both. That's basically impossible since they contradict each other. And that's not what Jesus is saying here at all. He's letting us know here he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. So he's not come to destroy them at all. Instead, he's coming to fulfill them so that people can know what it is. Um, it is we should draw from them and that they point to Jesus. They're letting us know the fulfillment of what they're pointing to as far as the coming of Messiah Christ is Jesus. And he's there to fulfill that, not to destroy it. Verse 18, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So Jesus is letting us know that um, not even one jot or one tittle. So one jot or one tittle would be like sort of think of, uh, in the Spanish language, over an N, you'll sometimes see that squiggle, that little mark that um, it's that's like a tittle, a tilde, or like an apostrophe, like that makes something either plural or makes it possessive. I think that's what he's pointing to. He's saying he's not removing even one mark of punctuation from the law, which would be significant depending on how you read something. Uh, one little jot, one. Jot or one tittle can make a huge difference. Like I said, just say it can make something go from being a possessive, like she, it, it can take the word she's, S-H-E apostrophe S, and um, make it uh, something altogether different just by moving the apostrophe, removing the apostrophe. But Jesus is letting us know here, he's not come to do any of that, but instead to fulfill it. And that he's uh, and that none of it's gonna pass away till it is fulfilled, and I think that points to what we've talked about before 
that there are laid out paths uh, that will lead to good or lead to evil. Evil, And it seems God watches almost like a simulation or a video game or favorite movie to see what paths we will take. Almost like that Final Destination movie where you get to choose the outcome of them and see which paths the people take depending on what, what you choose. It seems a lot like that. And Jesus is letting us know that that's already laid out and he's not coming to destroy it, but to fulfill parts of it or fulfill it, the law and the prophets specifically. Verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men souls shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven so jesus is letting us know in a roundabout way but directly that those laws aren't meant to be broken those ten commandments still stand so uh, he's not including all the dogma that goes with them like i said he he tears those down uh repeatedly with the religious leaders but instead the law and the prophets he's letting us know um, they're still not meant, you're still not meant to break the law as in thou shalt not kill uh, and all of those those still stand and he's saying if you start and if you teach people that they don't then it doesn't mean you're going to hell he's saying you, you'll still make it to heaven uh, but you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven as in you're not going to be some um, shining example in God's eyes of what Christianity should be. You may still make it, but you aren't going to be a, a, a star. But then also take this and put it with what Jesus says about John the Baptist in other passages in the Gospels where he says, but he was least in the kingdom of God is greater than he is, and that there's no prophet greater than John the Baptist. Um, so that whole greatness, I think it points to like I said before, it may be a situation like people with bugs. Some people are okay with bugs. Other people are okay with bugs at a diff distance. And other people will kill a bug if it gets too close. It may be that situation with God and people where no matter what, how great we are in humanity, we're still just bugs. And as long as we keep our distance, it's all good. We get too close, you might get smashed. It seems like that sort of situation, especially with... Uh, God in the Old Testament of people getting too close or getting out of line and getting zapped and killed, taken care of right away. Whereas other people seem to get away with all sorts of wickedness and evil for years and um, doesn't seem to move God to uh, squash them at all. Verse 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, uh, he just told us about least in the kingdom of God and great in the kingdom of heaven. But he's saying here, unless we can do better than these Bible thumping hypocrites, as far as like the religious leaders, especially they are the Pharisees, it's what he's, who he's referring to, but also the scribes, the ones who are going around telling you how you should be living. If unless you can do better than they do, then you're not even going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. So uh, being least in the kingdom is better than not making it at all. Uh, but you don't want to end up being the least uh, and doing like the, the people who don't practice what they preach. Those Pharisees and scribes and religious hypocrites. Verse 21. 
You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. So here now we get to something talking about, you know, the thou shalt not kill. He's referring here now, he's saying thou shalt not murder. And if you want to look it up in the Old Testament, as we call it, it's in Exodus verse chapter 20, verse 13. And Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17, where is a where you can find those commandments, those orders not to kill. And God bless the blueletterbible.org people for making that easy to find. And I also figured out how the red letter um, function works on the site also. So uh, if you're reading along with me or don't have a Bible yourself, you can use that website. It's blueletterbible.org and click the red letter function button and it'll let you know when Jesus is talking, when someone else is talking. So now Jesus is telling us, reflecting back onto that passage, letting them know, oh, you know that commandment of you thou shalt not kill, you shall not murder. Um, and if you do, you're in danger of the judgment. So, um, but here's what Jesus has to say about that. Verse 22, and you have to, you have to really pay attention that it's Jesus talking because some preachers will twist this and they'll use it as an excuse to say, oh, well, the death penalty is okay for this. Then it doesn't fall under those under those same uh, uh, same judgment. But here's what Jesus says about the whole situation. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. So it's a whole other standard that Jesus is laying out now for what it is that may end you up in hell. So some people believe it takes murder, that that's what it takes to end up with that ultimate judgment if you commit murder. But if you believe that, then believe what Jesus is saying. The bar is a lot higher than that. You don't have to just shed blood to end up in that uh, judgment seat and falling short in God's eyes. He's saying there's a whole lot of other things you can do short of that that will end you up there. He's saying if you're angry with your brother without a cause, so walking around with a grudge against somebody when they haven't done anything to you, um, uh, that'll get you there. But he's saying that'll get you, uh, put you in danger of the judgment, that same judgment you feel like the murderer should might be facing. And he says, if you say to your brother, Raka, so I don't know what Raka means. It's tough. I couldn't find an explanation for what it uh, means like online, but apparently it's nothing good and it's said with an exclamation point. So almost like a, a, some sort of judgment you may be passing when you, um, maybe cuss someone out but it again i don't know that because it's not really clear what raka means um except for one thing i could find about it is that it may mean something like hopeless you're saying someone is hopeless they're doomed they there's no hope for them in god that sort of thing making people believe they're damned and they have no chance of salvation and the part about you fools. So if even calling someone a fool is enough to make you um, put you at risk of ending up in the flames of hell, then that lets you know the bar really is much, much higher. You can do a lot less than shedding someone's blood and end up in that judgment seat. 
And that's the Christian bar that's being set now. Not the Old Testament bar, like he said, what you may have read about um, murder in the Old Testament. He's letting you know, if you're going to say you're Christian, the bar is set higher. Verse 23, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. So he's letting us know now this is where the Christian bar is set. It says so high that if you're on your way, say to church and you're taking your gift in hand, you take got your tithes and your offering in hand and on your way to church, you remember that you've done something to wrong your brother to the point that they have a grudge against you. They're mad at you about something. Jesus is telling us this is what you should do. This is on your way to church with your offering. If you realize that, verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So don't read over what Jesus says to do. If you're at that point, you're even there at the altar with the gift and the offering right there in hand. And you remember something, how some way that you wronged your brother. Then first, don't neglect your duty there to the altar. Leave the gift. That's not what's important. It's where it needs to be. It's where it can do its good. It's where it should be. But your soul is what needs to be tended to in that moment. The relationship you have with the brother that you can see is what you need to tend to first. Not the relationship of making an offering to a God you can't see. That can wait. Leave the gift there with God where you intended it anyway. But first, first he says, go and be reconciled to your brother. Tend to that relationship first. Make it right with the relationship you can see first. See about that first. Handle that first. The relationship you have with your fellow man. Make sure that that's right first and then come and offer your gift. Verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with them, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. So it seems he's talking there. Jesus is talking here about, um, I think, Judge Judy or one of those, uh, a court case if you're uh, having to sue someone, then be quick to try and settle it. Now, that's if you're the one being sued, make try to settle it, get it settled out of court. And it turns out in the American justice system, that's how most cases are settled. They're not um, taken to a trial at all. They're um, settled out of court way before then. And similarly with, with criminal cases, most are pleaded out before they even get to a trial but um you know in civil court that does end up in you know before a judge many times but as far as criminal uh, cases go generally they're pleaded out to a lesser charge um because the the it's easier to prove it's less of uh are those less lesser charges and people don't want to risk rolling the dice of being convicted of a heavier charge and getting more time especially if you don't have the complexion for protection that helps you in the justice system around the world but for sure in america so jesus is saying be willing to settle especially i would think if you're the one in the wrong you're the one who uh the adversary is after be ready to settle verse 26 assuredly i say to you you will by no means get out of there 
till you've paid the last penny. So if you are someone who is in the wrong and unwilling to settle and force it to go to court, take it to trial, then be sure it's going to cost you a lot. Jesus is letting you know, letting us know, uh, it may take your last penny. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. So he's reflecting now. At first he went over the thou shalt not as far as murder and killing goes. Now he's moved on to the adultery part of the commandments. And we've talked about what adultery can be, um, how adultery is identified before. But what where we're at now, Jesus is reflecting back on to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18, if you want to look those up, as far as those parts of the Ten Commandments. But notice what he says. He's saying, it said to those of old. So letting us know that he knows this is what's been preached to people since way back in the day, the Ten Commandments, as we call them. Um, but what does Jesus say as far as Christians go? What's the Christian walk like when it comes to Adultery, verse 28. But I say to you, whoever that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So people may be tempted to twist what Jesus just said, but let's not do that. Look at what he says and let's consider it. First, look who he's talking to. He's saying, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her. So that's... Uh, People will assume, oh, he means whether you're looking at a man or a woman. And if you're a man or a woman looking at a man or a woman, but that's not what he said. And it's not the same thing. It, I don't look at women and lust for them. So I don't have to worry about breaking that commandment. But many people do. Many people are under that umbrella. And it's not the same thing as looking at a man and lusting for him. If it were, he would have said that. So a lot of people under the LGBT umbrella, at least the males, avoid that command, uh, you know, avoid risk breaking the risk of breaking that commandment altogether. Um, of course, no one, you know, everyone's not the same. Everyone's different. But look who that's pointing to. So that's not it's something that generally speaking, a straight woman or a gay man can't even, uh, won't generally even break because that lust isn't there. And I think it's for a reason because generally speaking, that lust that is behind that, that straight men generally are the ones who will feel that and act on it. That's where the, the sin and the hurt, uh, harm can enter because it's not just seeing it, it's, but act, it's acting on it, which is where lesbians are able to draw the line they may have that lust in their heart to look at a woman and lust for uh, but not act on it but jesus is letting us know if you have that in your heart and that is something you're dealing with uh lusting for women for instance or what he's saying here then in that sense you've already committed the adultery you've already uh done it in your heart you've already broken that vow you've already crossed that line um, verse 29, if your right eye, which actually, if you are someone who is into trans people should give you some, um, comfort to let you know if it turns out you're married and you've been eyeing trans people, uh, secretly, then in a sense, you are okay if you're looking at trans people because 
what you're lusting for isn't what's under that umbrella. Now, again, I, it's how you deal with it and how you um, may act out on it. That may be a whole other problem. But just in seeing it, you may have some clearance under that uh, as far as that, those affections, even though your church may tell you otherwise. Uh, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast in the hell. So Jesus is saying, if you can't control what it is that you see, you see it and just have to have it and have to act on it, then you might be, you would be better off go ahead and plucking that eye out than letting that eye lead you to something that's going to cause you to burn in hell, to lose your soul. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast in the hell. So whether it's your eye causing you to see something you can't resist or your hand causing you to take something you can't resist stealing or helping yourself to, you'd be better off cutting those parts off. Now, obviously, it would be better for you if you rein those urges in, say, like through castration, uh, or maybe even as a society, it'd be better to rein those urges and uh, drives in rather than let the whole body burn in hell because it's gone unchecked. And I think in a sense, that would be the more humane thing as far as the justice system goes to deal with things like sexual assault, people who see something and just can't resist helping themselves to it, even if it's someone else's body, someone else's freedom. Castration would be the way to deal with that. Cut it off and let that person's soul survive. Let that person's life go on rather than imprison them uh, over something they're not able to control. Castrate them and do them a favor, do society a favor, do their soul a favor. It should at least be an option. And I don't mean chemical castration. I mean, take one of the balls at a time if it need be, but save the person's soul and save society that ugliness. I have a friend who just went through something like that, who is a CD, uh, maybe even uh, undercover or not yet there yet, it's TV, transvestite. Uh, T.S. possibly, but at this point, basically a CD living as a male, but exploring the other sides when they can. Met someone through those apps and thinking, oh, it's all on the up and up, it's all good. And then when they met the person first, uh, at the person's place, which of course, lots of different red flags, there's a safe way to do um, the apps and stuff. But anyway, when they got there, the person had two more people lying in wait who with a knife and abused my friend and did them wrong for hours and, and all in think and human and degrading my friend thinking they're they have the moral high ground because they live as men. And my friend is exploring the whole trans side of themselves thinking they're in the right and they're the righteous ones to be abusing and sitting around plotting and planning something so evil for someone um, and that they're in the right, whereas my friend is in the wrong. It's just really sick and it's a societal thing that can be checked, but it's not because it's easier to cast stones 
at people who are in the boat I'm in rather than let people know you don't have to be a certain way just because that's how society has trained you to be because it leads to sick things, toxic stuff like that. But anyway, pray for my friend. They're going through the whole testing and everything now to see if the attackers had anything, STDs and whatnot, or worse. Uh, Anyway, so verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So this is one of the instances where Jesus sort of levels the playing field between the sexes. Like I've said many times, the Old Testament is full of patriarchy and concern for what's best for the man with very little concern for the women since they're treated as property. This is one of the instances where Jesus lets us know in God's eyes, it's all the same. Which again lets me, me leads me to believe the instances we read about, about slaves, for instance, or about women, for instance, in the Old Testament, are not God speaking at all. It's the Old Testament patriarchy, fathers giving their two cents of dogma and not anything to do with what God would have us do. But here's an instance of it. Jesus is saying, you've heard that it was how divorce was to be handled, that a guy could give us a woman a certificate of divorce and basically dismiss her. It's the guy's prerogative, and that lives in many religions to this day, that the man can be as horrible, abusive, he can be a beater, a cheater, he can be horrible as he wants, but he gets to be the one to call the shots as to when the divorce is given, if a divorce is given. And believe it or not, it was that way in the United States all the way up until like the 70s, I think, 60s, 70s, until recently. Um, that it was the same way. You couldn't just get a divorce. It had to be agreed upon. It had to be, a man had to approve it. Otherwise, the woman couldn't get it, no matter how awful he was. So Jesus is reflecting back on that thinking now and bringing that up to them. Verse 32, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So let's not read over at all what Jesus just said there. He's introduced he's introduced something here called he's calling sexual immorality. It's also translated as fornication. But notice how he doesn't talk about this that the same way as adultery, because it's not the same thing. Sexual immorality can be you know, hoeing around, cheating on your spouse and all of that. Absolutely, that can be sexually immoral. But it's not just, that's not the only form of sex, sexual morality. Think of, uh, sure, absolutely, you think intercourse, yes, that's sex. But there's another form of sex, using your gender uh, against your partner. Uh, can also be sexual immorality. Say, like, if your gender, your uh, sex is more physically powerful than the person you're married to. You can immorally keep them in that relationship. You can be abusive. You can beat them. And that's actually sexually immoral too because you're using your sexual prowess, the power, the energy, your physical ability to control your spouse over them. That's also sexually immoral. So it goes beyond just sexually uh, 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 intercourse cheating, immoral, but it goes into domestic violence. That's sexually immoral also. And Jesus is letting us know 
if you that's the one good reason, the one acceptable reason to get a divorce. If if so if it's any other reason other than that sexual immorality, which again can be cheating, but it can be beating also, um, then you're committing adultery. And I think that's because you made a vow to um voluntarily to stay with that person till death do you part and whatnot. But notice that Jesus evens the, out the playing field and that he lets us know a woman can do it too. Because a woman, he's saying, uh, whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So if that woman ends up getting the divorce from her husband and then goes ahead and says, oh, you know what? It wasn't for sexual immorality. So the one reason Jesus is letting us know is acceptable and the umbrella that it covers uh, acceptable for divorce. But if you get divorced for some other reason, then turn around and say, you know what? I'd made that promise that I was going to stay with that person till death to his part. It didn't work out. But you know what? I'm going to go ahead and make that promise again and uh, let, ask God to just go ahead and accept that too. And I think what Jesus is letting us know, it doesn't work like that. If you make those promises, swear those oaths, which are again, voluntarily, obviously I'm speaking, not people who were forced into it, which still happens. But if you do that and it doesn't work out, then if you go ahead and turn around and say, oh, I'm just going to do it again, it's adultery because God remembers the first time you made the vows and didn't bother to keep them. And again, he gave us the reasons that are acceptable for getting the, the divorce. So um, I'd say by what Jesus is saying, consider it carefully if you're going to get married at all, because uh it looks like it can have a whole lot of consequences way beyond the legal ones. Verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. So Jesus is, it seems Jesus is again and again clearing it up for us, letting us know. I know you've been taught this. I know it's, your churches tell you that. I know people will interpret it as this and that and the other from the Old Testament. And the next thing he's touching on now is about swearing, making oaths, which includes, by the way, swearing those oaths when you get married. Those are oaths and promises. And Jesus tells us to avoid them. But let's see what he says here. Uh, about swearing and making promises. Verse 34, But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. So there goes marriage for me. If you're going to say you're a Christian and uh, following the red letters of what Jesus had to say, then how in the world are you swearing that you'll never do this and always do that for someone else when you don't know? We don't know what the next moment holds, much less years from now when people change, bodies change, I, uh, uh, interests change, all of those things change. So how in the world can you swear at all? So Jesus is telling us don't swear at all. Now, that doesn't mean you can't still enter a contract, um, a marriage contract, but if you're going to, I'd say very, very, very carefully consider your terms. Verse 35, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So Jesus is saying, don't swear by any of those things. When you um, agree to something, don't swear by heaven. That's God's God's spot. That's God's throne. You can't swear by that. Or he's telling us not to. Don't swear by the earth. Because uh, God puts his foot there. Uh, it's his footstool. It's where he can, uh, apparently it's where God likes to chill. 
again, that whole idea of the world being something God is observing. Uh, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And king there is capitalized. It's not talking about me, as far as I know. It's talking about the great king as in the, 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 it's where the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus himself, um, it's the city of his. And I think it's called that because that's where he's to be recognized, announced, and then preached from. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. So it's not talking about Miss Clairol. It's not talking about the beauty salon and dyeing your hair, where you can make your hair white or black. I think what he's talking about here clearly is you're not able to make, and notice what he says, one hair. You can't just make one hair that way. You can play with DNA. You can play with genes and create the human that you want, perhaps, that has whatever eye color you want, whatever hair color you want. But can you narrow it down and make one hair white or black? No, I don't think you can. So, believe it or not, that still stands true even to this day. You can't make one hair grow in white or black. Try as you may. So Jesus is letting us know you aren't even swear by that, even something as seemingly as as insignificant as one single hair, because you can't even do that. So don't even swear by your head, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So Jesus is saying, skip the promises, skip the oaths, skip all of that, leave all of that out. But instead, just be a person of your word. Let your word of saying yes be yes and let your no be no. Let that be enough. No need to throw in all the promises to do this and swearing to do that. Because all of that is, like he says, it's from the evil one. It's setting you up with a path uh, that wasn't there before uh, that will almost certainly cause you to fail. It's from the evil one. It's the path you want to avoid. Verse 38. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So uh, we've gone over that. We're to that part actually now in our Monday and Wednesday readings. And that's reflecting on Exodus uh, chapter 21, verse 24, Leviticus chapter 24, verse 20, and Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21, where it talks about basically vengeance, where if someone hurts you, you have the right to hurt them back. That Old Testament way of thinking, different from what Jesus says, and it's different in this way, Jesus is going to let us know. That's the bar if you're living by the Old Testament. That's the bar if you're going to let that be your religion, which you're free to do, which many people do. But if you're going to say you're a Christian, Jesus is letting us know, here's where the bar is for Christians. Verse 39, let's see. But I, sorry, it's this little thing won't close. Here we go. Verse 39, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. So Jesus is saying, don't return the evil for evil. Instead, when people greet you with evil, uh, don't do that. Instead, turn the other to them. Let them, uh, let them just dig their own grave. Let, if they, uh, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. I would think that's presumably because instead of returning the slap for slap, the um evil for evil between the slaps the person would realize they'd see oh i'm dealing with the salt of the earth i'm dealing with someone who's not on the same evil level wicked wavelength that they are 
And presumably God would intervene between that to get the person together. We know that doesn't always happen, but Jesus is letting us know that's supposed to be the Christian approach, not returning evil for evil. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. I think that's reflecting back on what Jesus says about um, early, what he said earlier about settling with your adversary, settling a suit, settling a lawsuit, settling a case to um, not be that one who wants to... Uh, just drag it all the way out be reasonable and come to a settlement um, but he's saying here in this situation if someone is trying to take away what you have in court again be willing uh, be willing to settle and it seems to me that that is the most reasonable sometimes because Although sometimes one side is completely right and the other side is completely wrong. But in those cases where it's not, where there's culpability on each side, be willing to settle. Verse 41, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with them too. So that's something mama taught me, it seems. And it's something that's handy in customer service, where if you're dealing with someone and you're on their timetable, you can't rush them along. Be willing to just tell them to take their time. Uh, so uh, give them even more leeway, actually extend it, what you'd ex expect and hope for yourself. You don't want to be rushed through something and hurried along. So be willing to extend that to someone else, uh, even if they're not so pleasant about getting you to do it. Verse 42, give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So that's a tough one also. Um because sometimes you don't have it to give. If you don't have it to give, that's a whole other thing. Because Jesus talks about that in the parable of the, the um, the bridegrooms waiting for the bride, uh, for the groom, and some running out of their oil and not have and asking the others for some. And they said, no, because there won't be enough for us and you. So there is an instance. There's a time where it's okay to say no to sharing what you have with someone else if there's not enough for both of you obviously but if you have more than enough if you have uh and someone else has nothing like he says before you have two or three coats and someone else is naked then oh, would it really hurt you to give one of your coats it it it's it, jesus is saying here i think remember that sometimes you're going to be the one asking not just the one receiving you're going to be the one uh, giving, not just the one receiving. So remember that sometimes you'll be the one in need, not the one who's providing the need. So just remember, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Put yourself in their shoes sometimes and you'll it, your reaction will be different. Um, and as far as borrowing, um, he says, do not turn away. I think when it comes to borrowing, the best thing, best bet would be if you have to give it, if you have it to give, again, not someone who, if it's, if you give it, you're not going to have any for yourself. But if you have it to give, then give it. Don't even worry about it being a loan where the person feels obligated and that sin walks in. But instead, give it. If you have it to give, just give it. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So uh, more Old Testament thinking of how it is to deal with your uh, neighbor and showing that love for your neighbor and um, 
when it's okay to just go ahead and hate your neighbor and only love those who are on your side. So Jesus is going to clear that up for us Christians. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So yes, that's a tough road road to hoe because um, it'd be easy to hate those who hate on you. But Jesus is letting us know, not so for Christians, it may be easier to go ahead and return that hate and and feel justified in it but instead pray for them that doesn't mean you have to have a relationship with them doesn't mean you have to have a friendship with them doesn't mean you have to have anything to do with them at all but what you should do what jesus is telling us to do is to pray for them pray and I, the prayer i would use is god get them together handle them for me jesus take the wheel verse 45 that you may be sons of your father in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So Jesus is saying here, it seems to me, the goal is to be like God. And just like God does nice things for everyone uh, at some time, lets the rain shine on, uh, fall on everyone and lets the sun shine on everyone at one time or another, whether we hate the one and love the other or not, it happens to us all at some point. Jesus, I believe, is letting us know we have to be the same way. We have to let our light shine. We have to let our salt show up in the dish for the good and for the evil, for the just and for the unjust. We have to extend that light to whoever we come in contact with. And now whether they, how they deal with it is on them. But we have to have that in ourselves for our enemies and for our friends. Tough as it may be. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. So that goes to having the salt in ourselves. If the best you can do is only smile at people who smile at you, only be friendly to people who are friendly to you, only acknowledge people who acknowledge you, then you're not doing anything more than the rest of the world. Instead, extend that generosity, that kindness, that mercifulness, that smile even, that wave, that nod to even the stranger. Just as, like I said before, at some point you were the stranger. You were the one who weren't known. You were the one who were looking for that. Just nod, a friendly smile, just a wave. You were that person. Remember that. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Uh, so he's saying, if you're only saying hey to your buddies and ignoring everyone else, even the tax collectors who are generally despised by just about everyone, even they're doing that. You're not clearing a very high bar if the best you can do is doing what everyone else is doing. And I think I skipped one, verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Maybe I didn't skip it. So he's saying if you're not doing any better than what the most despised of us are doing, how is your light shining? How are you any different? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So Jesus is saying here, if you do what he's telling us to do, if you let our light, if we let our light shine, if we let that salt be present, if we love our neighbor as ourselves, if we're just that merciful and kind to the stranger, even to our enemy, uh, as we are to our friends, then that's where we're letting God show up in our lives. That's where we're letting people see it and say, oh, you know what, that's not what I would do. So God bless them. 
and recognizing that it's only God who's making the difference. It's God who is the difference. It's the light of God in us that's making the difference, that's making us be different. That's the whole point. And that's actually the end of this reading. I appreciate you checking it out with me. And as always, hope it was a blessing for you. No, it was kind of long, but we got through it. Our, um, if you're interested in past readings, check them out on this site while uh, it lasts on this platform. Or if you're an adult, you can check them out on my platform, hungtgirl.com. Find out all about me, body, mind, spirit, and soul with the links there. Clicking on the pictures, they're actually videos. Find out about me and my friends, maybe even your friends. Make a donation, get a membership, or just enjoy the free content. God bless you for all of the above. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you again soon. Stay safe. Peace and blessings. Thank you.